0: The decision to press forward with operations inside North Korean territory was formally authorized by a United Nations resolution on October 7th, this time by the General Assembly under a recently adopted parliamentary device, the Uniting for Peace resolution, which allowed the General Assembly to make decisions on international security by a two-thirds vote. It authorized all constituent acts to bring about a unified, independent, and democratic government in the sovereign state of Korea. Chinese intervention against US forces was believed to be beyond Chinese capabilities. None of these views remotely coincided with the way Beijing regarded international affairs. As soon as American forces intervened in the Taiwan Strait, Mao treated the 7th Fleet's deployment as an invasion of Asia. China and the United States were approaching a clash by misinterpreting each other's strategic design. The United States strove to oblige China to accept its concept for international order based on international organizations, like the United Nations, to which it could not imagine an alternative. From the outset, Mao had no intention to accept an international system in the design of which China had no voice. As a result, the outcome of the American military strategy was inevitably going to be, at best, an armistice along whatever dividing line emerged, along the Yalu River, which denoted the border between North Korea and China, if the American design prevailed, along some other agreed line if China intervened or the United States stopped unilaterally short of Korea's northern frontier, for example at the 38th parallel, or at a line. Pyongyang to Wonsan, which emerged later in a Mao message to Zhou. What was most unlikely was Chinese acquiescence in an American presence at a border that was a traditional invasion route into China, and specifically the base from which Japan had undertaken the occupation of Manchuria and the invasion of northern China. China was all the less likely to be passive when such a posture involved a strategic setback on two fronts the Taiwan Strait, and Korea, partly because Mao had, to some extent, lost control over events in the prelude to Korea. The misconceptions of both sides compounded each other. The United States did not expect the invasion. China did not expect the reaction. Each side reinforced the other's misconceptions by its own actions. At the end of the process stood two years of war and 20 years of alienation. Chinese Reactions, Another Approach to Deterrence No student of military affairs would have thought it conceivable that the People's Liberation Army, barely finished with the Civil War and largely equipped with captured nationalist weapons, would take on a modern army backed up by nuclear weapons. But Mao was not a conventional military strategist. Mao's actions in the Korean War require an understanding of how he viewed what in Western strategy would be called deterrence or even preemption, and which in Chinese thinking combines the long-range strategic and psychological elements. In the West, the Cold War and the destructiveness of nuclear weapons have produced the concept of deterrence. To pose risks of destruction to a potential aggressor out of proportion to any possible gain. The efficacy of the threat is measured by things that do not happen, that is, the wars being avoided. For Mao, the Western concept of deterrence was too passive. He rejected a posture in which China was obliged to wait for an attack. Wherever possible, he strove for the initiative. On one level, this was similar to the Western concept of preemption, anticipating an attack by launching the first blow. But in the Western doctrine, preemption seeks victory and a military advantage. Mao's approach to preemption differed in the extraordinary attention he paid to psychological elements. His motivating force was less to inflict a decisive military first blow than to change the psychological balance not so much to defeat the enemy as to alter his calculus of risks. As we shall see in the later chapters, Chinese actions in the Taiwan Strait Crises of 1954 to 58, the Indian Border Clash of 1962, the conflict with the Soviets along the Usuri River in 1969 to 71, and the Sino-Vietnam War of 1979, all had the common feature of a sudden blow followed quickly by a political phase. Having restored the psychological equation, in Chinese eyes, genuine deterrence has been achieved. When the Chinese view of preemption encounters the Western concept of deterrence, a vicious circle can result. Acts conceived as defensive in China may be treated as aggressive by the outside world. Deterrent moves by the West may be interpreted in China as encirclement. The United States and China wrestled with this dilemma repeatedly during the Cold War. To some extent, they have not yet found a way to transcend it. Conventional wisdom has ascribed the Chinese decision to enter the Korean War to the American decision to cross the 38th parallel in early October 1950, and the advance of UN forces to the Yalu River, the Chinese-Korean border. Another theory was innate communist aggressiveness on the model of the European dictators a decade earlier. Recent scholarship demonstrates that neither theory was correct. Mao and his colleagues had no strategic designs on Korea in the sense of challenging its sovereignty. Before the war they were more concerned about balancing Russia there. Nor did they expect to challenge the United States militarily. They entered the war only after long deliberations and much hesitation as a kind of preemptive move. The triggering event for planning was the initial dispatch of American troops to Korea, coupled with the neutralization of the Taiwan Strait. From that moment, Mao ordered planning for Chinese entry into the Korean War for the purpose, at a minimum, of preventing the collapse of North Korea, and occasionally for the maximal revolutionary aim of expelling American forces from the peninsula entirely. He assumed, well before American or South Korean forces had moved north of the 38th parallel, that unless China intervened, North Korea would be overwhelmed. Stopping the American advance to the Yalu was a subsidiary element. It created in Mao's mind an opportunity for a surprise attack and a chance to mobilize public opinion it was not the principal motivating factor. Once the United States repelled the initial North Korean advance in August 1950, Chinese intervention became highly probable. When it turned the tide of battle by outflanking the North Korean army at Incheon and then crossed the 38th parallel, it grew inevitable. China's strategy generally exhibits three characteristics. Meticulous analysis of long-term trends careful study of tactical options, and detached exploration of operational decisions. Zhou Enlai started that process by chairing conferences of Chinese leaders on July 7th and July 10th, two weeks after the American deployment in Korea, to analyze the impact on China of American actions. The participants agreed to redeploy troops originally intended for the invasion of Taiwan to the Korean border and to constitute them as the Northeast Border Defense Army with the mission to defend the borders of the Northeast and to prepare to support the war operations of the Korean People's Army if necessary. By the end of July, or more than two months before U.S. forces crossed the 38th parallel, over 250,000 Chinese troops had been assembled on the Korean border. The Politburo and Central Military Commission meetings continued through August on August 4th, six weeks before the Incheon landing, when the military situation was still favorable to the invading North Korean forces and the front was still deep in South Korea around the city of Pusan, Mao, skeptical about North Korea's capabilities, told the Politburo, if the American imperialists are victorious, they will become dizzy with success and then be in a position to threaten us. We have to help Korea. We have to assist them. This can be in the form of a volunteer force and be at a time of our choosing, but we must start to prepare. At the same meeting, Joe made the same basic analysis. If the American imperialists crush North Korea, they will be swollen with arrogance and peace will be threatened. If we want to assure victory, we must increase the China factor. This may produce a change in the international situation. We must take a long range view In other words, it was the defeat of the still-advancing North Korea, not the particular location of American forces that China needed to resist. The next day, Mao ordered his top commanders to complete their preparations within this month and be ready for orders to carry out war operations. On August 13th, China's 13th Army Corps held a conference of senior military leaders to discuss this mission. Though expressing reservations about the August deadline, the conference participants concluded that China should take the initiative, cooperate with the Korean People's Army, march forward without reluctance, and break up the enemy's dream of aggression. In the meantime, staff analysis and map exercises were taking place. They led the Chinese to conclusions Westerners would have considered counterintuitive to the effect that China could win a war against the American armed forces. American commitments around the world, so the argument ran, would limit U.S. deployment to a maximum of 500,000, while China had an army of four million to draw on. China's proximity to the battlefield gave it a logistical advantage. Chinese planners thought they would have a psychological advantage, too, because most of the world's people would support China. Not even the possibility of a nuclear strike daunted the Chinese planners, probably because they had no first-hand experience with nuclear weapons and no means of acquiring them. They concluded, though not without some prominent dissenters, that an American nuclear response was unlikely in the face of the Soviet nuclear capacity, as well as the risk due to the jigsaw pattern of troops on the peninsula that an American nuclear strike on Chinese troops advancing into Korea might destroy U.S. forces as well. On August 26th, Zhou, in a talk to the Central Military Commission, summed up the Chinese strategy. Beijing should not treat the Korean problem merely as one of concerning a brother country or as one related to the interests of the Northeast. Instead, Korea should be regarded as an important international issue. Korea, Zhou argued, is indeed the focus of the struggles in the world. After conquering Korea, the United States will certainly turn to Vietnam and other colonial countries. Therefore, the Korean problem is at least the key to the East. Joe concluded that due to recent North Korean reversals, our duty is now much heavier and we should prepare for the worst and prepare quickly. Joe stressed the need for secrecy so that we could enter the war and give the enemy a sudden blow. All of this was taking place weeks before MacArthur's amphibious landing at Inchon, which a Chinese study group had predicted, and well over a month before UN forces crossed the 38th parallel. In short, China entered the war based on a carefully considered assessment of strategic trends, not as a reaction to an American tactical maneuver, nor out of a legalistic determination to defend the sanctity of the 38th parallel. A Chinese offensive was a preemptive strategy against dangers that had not yet materialized and based on judgments about ultimate American purposes toward China that were misapprehended. It was also an expression of the crucial role Korea played in China's long-range calculations, a condition perhaps even more relevant in the contemporary world. Mao's insistence on his course was also probably influenced by a belief that it was the only way to remedy his acquiescence in the Kim Il-sung and Stalin strategy of invasion. Otherwise, he might have been blamed by other leaders for the worsening of China's strategic situation by the presence of the 7th Fleet in the Taiwan Strait and of American forces on China's borders. The obstacles to Chinese intervention were so daunting that all of Mao's leadership was needed to achieve the approval of his colleagues. Two major commanders, including Lin Biao, refused the command of the Northeast Border Defense Army on various pretexts before Mao found, in Peng Dehuai, a commander prepared to undertake the assignment. Mao prevailed, as he had in all key decisions, and preparations for the entry of Chinese forces into Korea went inexorably forward. October saw American and Allied forces moving toward the Yalu, determined to unify Korea and to shelter it under a UN resolution. Their purpose was to defend the new status quo with these forces, technically constituting a UN command. The movement of the two armies toward each other thus acquired a foreordained quality about it, The Chinese were preparing a blow, while the Americans and their allies remained oblivious to the challenge waiting for them at the end of their march north. Zhou was careful to set the diplomatic stage. On September 24th, he protested to the United Nations what he characterized as American efforts to extend the war of aggression against Korea, to carry out armed aggression on Taiwan, and to extend further its aggression against China, on October 3rd, he warned the Indian Ambassador K. M. Panikar that U.S. troops would cross the 38th parallel and that if the U.S. troops really do so, we cannot sit by idly and remain indifferent. We will intervene. Please report this to the Prime Minister of your country." Panikar replied that he expected the crossing to occur within the next 12 hours but that the Indian government would not be able to take any effective action until 18 hours after the receipt of his cable. Joe responded, That is the Americans' business. The purpose of this evening's talk is to let you know our attitude toward one of the questions raised by Prime Minister Nehru in his letter. The talk was more making a record for what was already decided than a last plea for peace, as it is so often treated. At that point, Stalin re-entered the scene as the deus ex machina for the continuation of the conflict he had encouraged and which he did not want to see ended. The North Korean army was collapsing and another American landing on the opposite coast was expected by Soviet intelligence near Wonsan, wrongly. Chinese preparations for intervention were far advanced but as yet not irrevocable. Stalin therefore decided in a message on October 1st to Mao to demand Chinese intervention. After Mao deferred a decision citing the danger of American intervention, Stalin sent a follow-up telegram. He was prepared, he insisted, to pledge Soviet military support in an all-out war should the United States react to Chinese intervention. Of course, I took into account also the possibility that the USA despite its unreadiness for a big war, could still be drawn into a big war out of considerations of prestige, which in turn would drag China into the war, and along with this, draw into the war the USSR, which is bound with China by the Mutual Assistance Pact. Should we fear this? In my opinion, we should not, because together we will be stronger than the USA and England, while the other European capitalist states, with the exception of Germany, which is unable to provide any assistance to the United States now, do not present serious military forces. If a war is inevitable, then let it be waged now, and not in a few years when Japanese militarism will be restored as an ally of the USA, and when the USA and Japan will have a ready-made bridgehead on the continent in a form of the entire Korea run by Singman Ri. At its face value, this extraordinary communication seemed to assert that Stalin was ready to go to war with the United States to prevent Korea from becoming part of America's strategic sphere. A united pro-American Korea, to which in Stalin's eyes, sooner or later a resurgent Japan would become a partner, presented in that analysis the same threat in Asia as the emerging NATO in Europe. The two together might be more than the Soviet Union could handle In the event, when put to the test, Stalin proved unwilling to undertake the all-out commitment he had pledged to Mao, or even any aspect of direct confrontation with the United States. He knew that the balance of power was too unfavorable for a showdown, much less a two-front war. He sought to tie down the American military potential in Asia and to involve China in enterprises that magnified its dependence on Soviet support. What Stalin's letter does demonstrate is how seriously Soviet and Chinese strategists assessed the strategic importance of Korea, if for quite different reasons. Stalin's letter placed Mao in a predicament. It was one thing to plan intervention in the abstract, partly as an exercise in revolutionary solidarity. It was another actually to carry it out especially when the North Korean army was on the verge of disintegrating. Chinese intervention made imperative Soviet supplies, and above all, Soviet air cover, since the PLA had no modern air force to speak of. Thus, when the issue of intervention was put before the Politburo, Mao received an unusually ambivalent response, causing him to pause before giving the final answer. Instead, Mao dispatched Lin Biao, who had refused the command of the Chinese forces, citing health problems, and Zhou to Russia to discuss the prospects of Soviet assistance. Stalin was in the Caucasus on vacation, but saw no reason to alter his schedule. He obliged Zhou to come to his retreat, even though, or perhaps because, Zhou would have no means of communication with Beijing from Stalin's dacha except through Soviet channels. Zhou and Lin Biao had been instructed to warn Stalin that without assurances of guaranteed supplies, China might not in the end carry out what it had been preparing for two months. For China would be the principal theater of the conflict Stalin was promoting. Its prospects would depend on the supplies and direct support Stalin would make available. When faced with this reality, Mao's colleagues reacted ambivalently. Some opponents even went so far as to argue that priority should be given to domestic development. For once, Mao seemed to hesitate, if only for a moment. Was it a maneuver to obtain a guarantee of support from Stalin before Chinese forces were irrevocably committed? Or was he truly undecided? A symptom of internal Chinese divisions is the mysterious case of a telegram from Mao to Stalin sent on the night of October 2nd, of which two contradictory versions are held in the archives of Beijing and Moscow. In one version of Mao's telegram, drafted in Mao's handwriting, filed in the archives in Beijing, published in a nebu, internal circulation only, Chinese collection of Mao's manuscripts, but likely never actually dispatched to Moscow, Mao wrote that Beijing had decided to send some of our troops to Korea under the name of Chinese People's Volunteers to fight the United States and its lackey, Singman Rhee, and to aid our Korean comrades. Mao cited the danger that, absent Chinese intervention, the Korean Revolutionary Force will meet with a fundamental defeat, and the American aggressors will rampage unchecked once they occupy the whole of Korea this will be unfavorable to the entire East. Mao noted that we must be prepared for a declaration of war by the United States and for the subsequent use of the U.S. Air Force to bomb many of China's main cities and industrial bases, as well as an attack by the U.S. Navy on our coastal areas. The Chinese plan was to send 12 divisions from South Manchuria on October 15th. At the initial stage, Mao wrote, they would deploy north of the 38th parallel and will merely engage in defensive warfare against enemy troops that cross the parallel. In the meantime, they will wait for the delivery of Soviet weapons. Once they are well equipped, they will cooperate with the Korean comrades in counterattacks to annihilate American aggressor troops. In a different version of Mao's October 2nd telegram, sent via the Soviet ambassador in Beijing, received in Moscow, and filed in the Russian presidential archives, Mao informed Stalin that Beijing was not prepared to send troops. He held out the possibility that after further consultations with Moscow, and he implied pledges of additional Soviet military support, Beijing would be willing to join the conflict. For years, scholars analyzed the first version of the telegram as if it were the sole operative version. When the second version emerged, some wondered whether one of the documents might be a fabrication. Most plausible is the explanation put forth by the Chinese scholar Shen Zhihua that Mao drafted the first version of the telegram intending to send it, but that the Chinese leadership was so divided that a more equivocal telegram was substituted. The discrepancy suggests that even as Chinese troops advanced toward Korea, the Chinese leadership was still debating about how long to hold out for a definitive commitment of support from its Soviet ally before taking the last irrevocable step. The two communist autocrats had been trained in a hard school of power politics, which they were now applying to each other In this case, Stalin proved the quintessential hardball player. He coolly informed Mao, via a joint telegram with Zhou, that in view of China's hesitation, the best option would be to withdraw the remnants of the North Korean forces into China, where Kim Il-sung could form a provisional government in exile. The sick and disabled could go to the Soviet Union. He did not mind Americans on his Asian border, said Stalin, since he already faced them along the European dividing lines. Stalin knew that the only outcome Mao wanted less than American forces at China's borders was a provisional Korean government in Manchuria in contact with the Korean minority living there, claiming some kind of sovereignty and constantly pressing military adventures into Korea. And he must have sensed that Mao had passed the point of no return. China's choice at this point was between an American army on the Yalu directly threatening the half of Chinese industry within easy reach and a disgruntled Soviet Union holding back on supplies, perhaps reinvoking its rights in Manchuria. Or else China would proceed along the course Mao had continued to pursue even while bargaining with Stalin. He was in a position where he had to intervene, paradoxically in part to protect himself against Soviet designs. On October 19th, after several days of delay to await a guarantee of Soviet supplies, Mao ordered the army to cross into Korea. Stalin pledged substantial logistical support, provided only that it involved no direct confrontation with the United States. For example, air cover over Manchuria, but not over Korea. Mutual suspicion was so rampant that Zhou had no sooner returned to Moscow from where he could communicate with Beijing than Stalin seemingly reversed himself. To prevent Mao from maneuvering the Soviet Union into bearing the brunt of equipping the PLA without getting the benefit of its tying down American forces in combat in Korea, Stalin informed Zhou that no supplies would start moving until Chinese forces had, in fact, entered Korea. Mao issued the order on October 19th, in effect without an assurance of Soviet support. After that, the originally promised Soviet support was reinstated, though the ever-cautious Stalin confined Soviet air support to Chinese territory. So much for the readiness expressed in his earlier letter to Mao to risk a general war over Korea. Both communist leaders had exploited each other's necessities and insecurities. Mao had succeeded in obtaining Soviet military supplies to modernize his army. Some Chinese sources claim that during the Korean War, he received equipment for 64 infantry divisions and 22 air divisions. And Stalin had tied down China into a conflict with the United States in Korea. Sino-American Confrontation the United States was a passive observer to these internal communist machinations. It explored no middle ground between stopping at the 38th parallel and the unification of Korea, and ignored the series of Chinese warnings about the consequences of crossing that line. Atchison puzzlingly did not consider them official communications and thought they could be ignored. He probably thought he could face Mao down none of the many documents published to date by all sides reveals any serious discussion of a diplomatic option by any of the parties. The many meetings of Zhou with the Central Military Commission or the Politburo reveal no such intent. Contrary to popular perception, Beijing's warning to Washington not to cross the 38th parallel was almost certainly a diversionary tactic. By that point, Mao had already sent ethnic Korean PLA troops from Manchuria to Korea to assist the North Koreans, moved a significant military force away from Taiwan and toward the Korean border, and promised Chinese support to Stalin and Kim. The only chance that might have existed to avoid immediate U.S.-China combat can be found in instructions Mao sent in a message to Zhou, still in Moscow, about his strategic design on October 14th as Chinese troops were preparing to cross the Korean border. Our troops will continue improving their defense works if they have enough time. If the enemy tenaciously defends Pyongyang and Wonsan and does not advance north in the next six months, our troops will not attack Pyongyang and Wonsan. Our troops will attack Pyongyang and Wonsan only when they are well equipped and trained, and have clear superiority over the enemy in both air and ground forces. In short, we will not talk about waging offensives for six months. There was no chance, of course, that in six months, China could have achieved clear superiority in either category. Had American forces stopped at the line from Pyongyang to Wonsan, the narrow neck of the Korean peninsula, would that have created a buffer zone to meet Mao's strategic concern? Would some American diplomatic move toward Beijing have made any difference? Would Mao have been satisfied with using his presence in Korea to re-equip his forces? Perhaps the six-month pause Mao mentioned to Joe would have provided an occasion for diplomatic contact, for military warnings, or for Mao or Stalin to change his mind. On the other hand, a buffer zone on hitherto communist territory was almost certainly not Mao's idea of his revolutionary or strategic duty. Still, he was enough of a Shunzi disciple to pursue seemingly contradictory strategies simultaneously. The United States, in any event, had no such capacity. It opted for a UN-endorsed demarcation line along the Yalu, over what it could protect with its own forces and its own diplomacy along the narrow neck of the Korean Peninsula. In this manner, each side of the triangular relationship moved toward a war with the makings of a global conflict. The battle lines moved back and forth. Chinese forces took Seoul, but were driven back until a military stalemate settled over the combat zone within the framework of armistice negotiations lasting nearly two years, during which American forces refrained from offensive operations, the almost ideal outcome from the Soviet point of view. The Soviet advice throughout was to drag out the negotiations, and therefore the war, as long as possible. An armistice agreement emerged on July 27, 1953, settling essentially along the pre-war line of the 38th Parallel none of the participants achieved all of its aims. For the United States, the armistice agreement realized the purpose for which it had entered the war. It denied success to the North Korean aggression. But it had, at the same time, enabled China, at a moment of great weakness, to fight the nuclear superpower to a standstill and oblige it to retreat from its furthest advance. It preserved American credibility in protecting allies but at the cost of incipient Allied revolt and domestic discord. Observers could not fail to remember the debate that had developed in the United States over war aims. General MacArthur, applying traditional maxims, sought victory. The administration, interpreting the war as a feint to lure America into Asia, which was surely Stalin's strategy, was prepared to settle for a military draw and probably a long-term political setback. The first such outcome in a war fought by America. The inability to harmonize political and military goals may have tempted other Asian challengers to believe in America's domestic vulnerability to wars without clear-cut military outcomes. A dilemma that reappeared with a vengeance in the vortex of Vietnam a decade later. Nor can Beijing be said to have achieved all its objectives, at least in conventional military terms. Mao did not succeed in liberating all of Korea from American imperialism, as Chinese propaganda claimed initially. But he had gone to war for larger and in some ways more abstract, even romantic, aims. To test the new China with a trial by fire and to purge what Mao perceived as China's historic softness and passivity, to prove to the West, and to some extent the Soviet Union, that China was now a military power and would use force to vindicate its interests, to secure China's leadership of the Communist movement in Asia, and to strike at the United States, which Mao believed was planning an eventual invasion of China, at a moment he perceived as opportune. The principal contribution of the new ideology was not its strategic concepts so much as the willpower to defy the strongest nations and to chart its own course. In that broader sense, the Korean War was something more than a draw. It established the newly founded People's Republic of China as a military power and center of Asian Revolution. It also built up military credibility that China, as an adversary worthy of fear and respect, would draw on through the next several decades. The memory of Chinese intervention in Korea would later restrain U.S. strategy significantly in Vietnam. Beijing succeeded in using the war and the accompanying Resist America, Aid Korea propaganda and Purge campaign to accomplish two central aims of Mao's to eliminate domestic opposition to party rule, and to instill revolutionary enthusiasm and national pride in the population. Nourishing resentment of Western exploitation, Mao framed the war as a struggle to defeat American arrogance. Battlefield accomplishments were treated as a form of spiritual rejuvenation after decades of Chinese weakness and abuse. China emerged from the war exhausted, but redefined in both its own eyes and the world's. Ironically, the biggest loser in the Korean War was Stalin, who had given the green light to Kim Il-sung to start, and had urged, even blackmailed, Mao to intervene massively. Encouraged by America's acquiescence in the communist victory in China, he had calculated that Kim Il-sung could repeat the pattern in Korea, The American intervention thwarted that objective. He urged Mao to intervene, expecting that such an act would create a lasting hostility between China and the United States and increase China's dependence on Moscow. Stalin was right in his strategic prediction, but erred grievously in assessing the consequences. Chinese dependence on the Soviet Union was double-edged. The rearmament of China that the Soviet Union undertook, in the end, shortened the time until China would be able to act on its own. The Sino-American schism Stalin was promoting did not lead to an improvement of Sino-Soviet relations, nor did it reduce China's titoist option. On the contrary, Mao calculated that he could defy both superpowers simultaneously. American conflicts with the Soviet Union were so profound that Mao judged he needed to pay no price for Soviet backing in the Cold War. Indeed, that he could use it as a threat even without its approval, as he did in a number of subsequent crises. Starting with the end of the Korean War, Soviet relations with China deteriorated, caused in no small part by the opaqueness with which Stalin had encouraged Kim Il-sung's adventure, the brutality with which he had pressed China toward intervention, and, above all, the grudging manner of Soviet support all of which was in the form of repayable loans. Within a decade, the Soviet Union would become China's principal adversary. And before another decade had passed, another reversal of alliance would take place. Chapter 6 China Confronts Both Superpowers Otto von Bismarck, probably the greatest diplomat of the second half of the 19th century, once said that in a world order of five states, it is always desirable to be part of a group of three. Applied to the interplay of three countries, one would therefore think that it is always desirable to be in a group of two. That truth escaped the chief actors of the China-Soviet-U.S. triangle for a decade and a half, partly because of the unprecedented maneuvers of Mao. In foreign policy, Statesmen often served their objectives by bringing about a confluence of interests. Mao's policy was based on the opposite. He learned to exploit overlapping hostilities. The conflict between Moscow and Washington was the strategic essence of the Cold War. The hostility between Washington and Beijing dominated Asian diplomacy. But the two communist states could never merge their respective hostility toward the United States, except briefly and incompletely in the Korean War, because of Mao's evolving rivalry with Moscow over ideological primacy and geostrategic analysis. From the point of view of traditional power politics, Mao of course was in no position to act as an equal member of the triangular relationship. He was by far the weakest and most vulnerable. But by playing on the mutual hostility of the nuclear superpowers and creating the impression of being impervious to nuclear devastation, he managed to bring about a kind of diplomatic sanctuary for China. Mao added a novel dimension to power politics, one for which I know of no precedent. Far from seeking the support of either superpower, as traditional balance-of-power theory would have counseled, He exploited the Soviet US fear of each other by challenging each of the rivals simultaneously. Within a year of the end of the Korean War, Mao confronted America militarily in a crisis in the Taiwan Strait. Almost simultaneously, he began to confront the Soviet Union ideologically. He felt confident in pursuing both courses because he calculated that neither superpower would permit his defeat by the other. It was a brilliant application of the Zhuge Liang, empty city stratagem, described in an earlier chapter, which turns material weakness into a psychological asset. At the end of the Korean War, traditional students of international affairs, especially Western scholars, expected that Mao would seek a period of respite. Since the victory of the communists, there had been nary a month of even apparent tranquility. Land reform, the implementation of the Soviet economic model, and the destruction of the domestic opposition had constituted a packed and dramatic domestic agenda. Simultaneously, the still quite underdeveloped country was engaged in a war with a nuclear superpower in possession of advanced military technology. Mao had no intention to enter history for the respites he availed to his society, Instead, he launched China into a set of new upheavals. Two conflicts with the United States in the Taiwan Strait, the beginning of conflict with India, and a growing ideological and geopolitical controversy with the Soviet Union. For the United States, by contrast, the end of the Korean War and the advent of the administration of Dwight Eisenhower marked the return to domestic normalcy that would last for the rest of the decade. Internationally, the Korean War became a template for communism's commitment to expansion by political subversion or military aggression wherever possible. Other parts of Asia supplied corroborating evidence. The guerrilla war in Malaysia, the violent bid for power by leftists in Singapore, and increasingly in the wars in Indochina, where the American perception went partially awry was in thinking of communism as a monolith and failing to understand the depth of suspicion, even at this early stage, between the two communist giants. The Eisenhower administration dealt with the threat of aggression by methods borrowed from America's European experience. It tried to shore up the viability of countries bordering the communist world following the example of the Marshall Plan, and it constructed military alliances in the style of NATO, such as the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, CETO, between the new nations bordering China in Southeast Asia. It did not fully consider the essential difference between European conditions and those at the fringe of Asia. The post-war European countries were established states with elaborated institutions. Their viability depended on closing the gap between expectation and reality, caused by the depredations of the Second World War. An expansive project that proved manageable, however, in a relatively brief period of time as history is measured. With domestic stability substantially assured, the security problem turned into defense against a potential military attack across established international frontiers. In Asia, around the rim of China, however, the states were still in the process of formation. The challenge was to create political institutions and a political consensus out of ethnic and religious divisions. This was less a military, more a conceptual task. The security threat was domestic insurrection, or guerrilla warfare, rather than organized units crossing military frontiers. This was a particular challenge in Indochina, where the end of the French colonial project left four countries, North Vietnam, South Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, with contested borders and weak independent national traditions. These conflicts had their own dynamism, not controllable in detail from Beijing or Moscow or Washington, yet influenced by the policies of the Strategic Triangle. In Asia, therefore, there were very few, if any, purely military challenges. Military strategy and political and social reform were inextricably linked. The First Taiwan Strait Crisis Beijing and Taipei proclaimed what amounted to two competing versions of the same Chinese national identity. In the nationalist view, Taiwan was not an independent state, It was the home of the Republic of China's government in exile, which had been temporarily displaced by communist usurpers, but which, as nationalist propaganda insistently proclaimed, would return to assume its rightful place on the mainland. In Beijing's conception, Taiwan was a renegade province whose separation from the mainland and alliance with foreign powers represented the last vestige of China's century of humiliation. Both Chinese sides agreed that Taiwan and the mainland were part of the same political entity. The disagreement was about which Chinese government was the rightful ruler. Washington and its allies periodically floated the idea of recognizing the Republic of China and the People's Republic of China as separate states, the so-called two-China solution. Both Chinese sides vociferously rejected this proposal, on the ground that it would prevent them from fulfilling a sacred national obligation to liberate the other. Against its initial judgment, Washington affirmed Taipei's stance that the Republic of China was the real Chinese government, entitled to China's seat in the United Nations and other international institutions. Assistant Secretary of State for Eastern Affairs, Dean Rusk, later to become Secretary of State, articulated this stance for the Truman administration in 1951, stating that, despite appearances to the contrary, the Beiping, then the nationalist appellation for Beijing, regime is not the government of China, it is not Chinese, it is not entitled to speak for China in the community of nations. The People's Republic of China, with its capital in Beijing, was for Washington a legal and diplomatic non-entity despite its actual control over the world's largest population. This would remain with only minor variations the official American position for the next two decades. The unintended consequence was American involvement in the Chinese Civil War. It cast the United States, in Beijing's conception of international affairs, as the latest in a string of foreign powers perceived as conspiring for a century to divide and dominate China. In Beijing's view, so long as Taiwan remained under a separate administrative authority receiving foreign political and military assistance, the project of founding a new China would remain incomplete. The United States, Chiang's primary ally, had little appetite for a nationalist reconquest of the mainland, though Taipei's supporters in Congress periodically called on the White House to unleash Chiang. No American president seriously considered a campaign to reverse the communist victory in the Chinese Civil War. A source of profound misapprehension on the communist side. The first direct Taiwan crisis erupted in August 1954, little more than a year after the end of active hostilities in the Korean War. The pretext for it was a territorial quirk of the nationalist retreat from the mainland. The remaining presence of nationalist forces on several heavily fortified islands hugging the Chinese coast. These offshore islands, which were much closer to the mainland than to Taiwan, included Kemoi, Matsu, and several smaller outcroppings of land. Depending on one's view, the offshore islands were either Taiwan's first line of defense, or, as nationalist propaganda proclaimed, its forward operating base for an eventual reconquest of the mainland. The offshore islands were an odd location for what turned into two major crises within a decade, in which at one point both the Soviet Union and the United States implied a readiness to use nuclear weapons. Neither the Soviet Union nor the United States had any strategic interest in the offshore islands. Neither, as it turned out, did China. Instead, Mao used them to make a general point about international relations as part of his grand strategy against the United States in the first crisis and against the Soviet Union, especially Khrushchev, in the second. At the closest point, Kemoi was roughly two miles from the major Chinese port city of Xiamen. Matsu was similarly close to the city of Fuzhou. The islands were visible with the naked eye from the mainland and within easy artillery range. Taiwan was well over 100 miles away. PLA forays against the offshore islands in 1949 were turned back by strong nationalist resistance. Truman's dispatch of the 7th Fleet to the Taiwan Strait at the outset of the Korean War forced Mao to postpone the planned invasion of Taiwan indefinitely, and Beijing's appeals to Moscow for support in the full liberation of Taiwan were met by evasions a first stage toward the ultimate estrangement. The situation grew more complex when Eisenhower succeeded Truman as president. In his first State of the Union address on February 2nd, 1953, Eisenhower announced an end to the 7th Fleet's patrol in the Taiwan Strait. Because the fleet had prevented attacks in both directions, Eisenhower reasoned that the mission had meant, in effect, that the U.S. Navy was required to serve as a defensive arm of Communist China, even while Chinese forces were killing American troops in Korea. Now he was ordering it out of the Strait, since Americans certainly have no obligation to protect a nation fighting us in Korea. In China, the 7th Fleet's deployment to the Strait had been seen as a major American offensive move. Now, paradoxically, its redeployment set the stage for a new crisis. Taipei began reinforcing Kimoi and Matsu with thousands of additional troops and a significant store of military hardware. Both sides now faced a dilemma. China would never abandon its commitment to the return of Taiwan, but it could postpone its implementation in the face of overwhelming obstacles, such as the presence of the Seventh Fleet. After the fleet's withdrawal, it faced no comparable obstacle vis-à-vis the offshore islands. For its part, America had committed itself to the defense of Taiwan. But a war over offshore islands that Secretary of State John Foster Dulles described as a bunch of rocks was another matter. The confrontation became more acute when the Eisenhower administration began negotiating a formal mutual defense treaty with Taiwan followed by the creation of the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization. When faced with a challenge, Mao generally took the most unexpected and most intricate course. While Secretary of State John Dulles was flying to Manila for the formation of CITO, Mao ordered a massive shelling of Kemoe and Matsu, a shot across the bow of Taiwan's increasing autonomy, and a test of Washington's commitment to multilateral defense of Asia. The initial artillery barrage on Kemoi claimed the lives of two American military officers and prompted the immediate redeployment of three U.S. carrier battle groups to the vicinity of the Taiwan Strait. Keeping to its pledge to no longer serve as a defensive arm of the People's Republic of China, Washington now approved retaliatory artillery and aircraft strikes by nationalist forces against the mainland. In the meantime, members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff began developing plans for the possible use of tactical nuclear weapons should the crisis escalate. Eisenhower demurred for the moment at least and approved a plan to seek a ceasefire resolution at the UN Security Council. The crisis over territory nobody wanted had become global. The crisis had, however, no obvious political objective. China was not threatening Taiwan directly. The United States did not want a change in the status of the strait. The crisis became less a rush to confrontation, as the media presented it, than a subtle exercise in crisis management. Both sides maneuvered toward intricate rules designed to prevent the military confrontation they were proclaiming on the political level. Shunzi was alive and well in the diplomacy of the Taiwan Strait. The outcome was combative coexistence, not war. To deter an attack caused by a misapprehension as to American resolve, as in Korea, Dulles and the Taiwanese ambassador in Washington on November 23, 1954, initialed the text of the long-planned defense treaty between the United States and Taiwan. However, on the matter of the territory that had just come under actual attack, the American commitment was ambiguous. The treaty applied specifically only to Taiwan and the Pescadores Islands, a larger group of islands about 25 miles from Taiwan. It made no mention of Kemoi, Matsu, and other territories close to the Chinese mainland, leaving them to be defined later, as may be determined by mutual consent. For his part, Mao prohibited his commanders from attacking American forces while laying down a marker to blunt America's most intimidating weapon. China, he proclaimed, in the incongruous setting of a meeting with the new Finnish ambassador in Beijing, was impervious to the threat of nuclear war. The Chinese people are not to be cowed by U.S. atomic blackmail. Our country has a population of 600 million, and an area of 9,600,000 square kilometers. The United States cannot annihilate the Chinese nation with its small stack of atom bombs. Even if the US atom bombs were so powerful that, when dropped on China, they would make a hole right through the earth or even blow it up, that would hardly mean anything to the universe as a whole. Though it might be a major event for the solar system, if the United States with its planes plus the A-bomb is to launch a war of aggression against China, then China, with its millet plus rifles, is sure to emerge the victor. The people of the whole world will support us. Since both Chinese sides were playing by Weiqi rules, the mainland began moving into the gap left by the treaty's omissions. On January 18th, it invaded the Dachin and Yijangshan Islands, two smaller island groups, not specifically covered by the treaty both sides continued to carefully define their limits. The United States did not attempt to defend the small islands. The Seventh Fleet, in fact, assisted with the evacuation of nationalist forces. PLA forces were prohibited to fire on American armed forces. As it turned out, Mao's rhetoric had a greater impact on his Soviet allies than on the United States. For it confronted Khrushchev with the dilemma of supporting his ally for a cause that reflected no Russian strategic interest, but involved risks of nuclear war, which Khrushchev increasingly described as unacceptable. The Soviet Union's European allies, with their tiny populations, were even more terrified of Mao's utterances about China's capacity to lose half its population in a war and eventually prevail. As for the United States, Eisenhower and Dulles matched Mao's dexterity. They had no intention to test Mao's endurance with respect to nuclear warfare, but neither were they prepared to abandon the option of defending the national interest. In the last week of January, they arranged for the passage of a resolution of both houses of the United States Congress, authorizing Eisenhower to use U.S. forces to defend Taiwan, the Pescadores Islands, and related positions and territories in the Taiwan Strait. The art of crisis management is to raise the stakes to where the adversary will not follow, but in a manner that avoids a tit for tat. On that principle, Dulles, at a press conference on March 15, 1955, announced that the United States was prepared to meet any major new communist offensive with tactical nuclear weapons which China did not have. The next day, Eisenhower confirmed the warning, observing that so long as civilians were not in harm's way, he saw no reason the United States could not use tactical nuclear weapons just exactly as you would use a bullet or anything else. It was the first time the United States had made a specific nuclear threat in an ongoing crisis. Mao proved more willing to announce China's imperviousness to nuclear war than to practice it. He ordered Zhou Enlai, then at the Asian African Conference of Non-Aligned Countries in Bandung, Indonesia, to sound the retreat. On April 23, 1955, Zhou extended the olive branch. The Chinese people do not want to have a war with the United States of America. The Chinese government is willing to sit down and enter into negotiations with the U.S. government to discuss the question of relaxing tension in the Far East, and especially the question of relaxing tension in the Taiwan area. The next week, China ended the shelling campaign in the Taiwan Strait. The outcome, like that of the Korean War, was a draw, in which each side achieved its short-term objectives. The United States faced down a military threat, Mao, aware that mainland forces did not have the capacity to occupy Kemoe and Matsu in the face of concerted opposition, later explained his strategy as having been much more complex. Far from seeking to occupy the offshore islands, he told Khrushchev that he had used the threat against them to keep Taiwan from breaking its link to the mainland. All we wanted to do was show our potential we don't want Chiang to be too far away from us. We want to keep him within our reach. Having him on Kemoi and Matsu means we can get at him with our shore batteries, as well as our air force. If we'd occupied the islands, we would have lost the ability to cause him discomfort anytime we want. In that version, Beijing shelled Kimoi to reaffirm its claim to one China, but restrained its action to prevent a two-China solution from emerging. Moscow, with a more literal approach to strategy and actual knowledge of nuclear weapons, found it incomprehensible that a leader might go to the brink of nuclear war to make a largely symbolic point. As Khrushchev complained to Mao, if you shoot, then you ought to capture these islands. And if you do not consider necessary capturing these islands, then there is no use in firing. I do not understand this policy of yours. It has even been claimed in a one-sided but often thought-provoking biography of Mao that Mao's real motive in the crisis had been to create a risk of nuclear war so acute that Moscow would be obliged to assist Beijing's fledgling nuclear weapons program to ease the pressure for Soviet assistance. Among the many counterintuitive aspects of the crisis, was the apparent Soviet decision, later revoked as a result of the second offshore islands crisis, to help Beijing's nuclear program in order to put a distance between itself and its troublesome ally in any future crisis by leaving the nuclear defense of China in China's hands. Diplomatic interlude with the United States. One result of the crisis was the resumption of a formal dialogue between the United States and China. At the Geneva Conference of 1954, to settle the first Vietnam War between France and the communist-led independence movement, Beijing and Washington had grudgingly agreed to maintain contacts through consular level officials based in Geneva. The arrangement provided a framework for a kind of safety net to avoid confrontations because of misapprehensions. But neither side did so with any conviction, or rather their convictions ran in opposite directions. The Korean War had put an end to all diplomatic initiatives toward China in the Truman administration. The Eisenhower administration, coming into office with the war in Korea not yet ended, considered China the most intransigent and revolutionary of the communist powers. Hence its primary strategic goal was the construction of a security system in Asia to contain potential Chinese aggression. Diplomatic overtures to China were avoided, lest they jeopardize still fragile security systems, such as CETO, and the emerging alliances with Japan and South Korea. Dulles's refusal to shake hands with Zhou Enlai at the Geneva Conference reflected both moral rejection and strategic design Mao's attitude was the mirror image of Dulles's and Eisenhower's. The Taiwan issue created a permanent cause of confrontation, especially so long as the United States treated the Taiwan authorities as the legitimate government of all of China. Deadlock was inherent in Sino-U.S. diplomacy because China would discuss no other subject until the United States agreed to withdraw from Taiwan and the United States would not talk about withdrawing from Taiwan until China had renounced the use of force to solve the Taiwan question. By the same token, the Sino-U.S. dialogue, after the first Taiwan Strait crisis, ran into the ground because so long as each side maintained its basic position, there was nothing to talk about. The United States reiterated that the status of Taiwan should be settled through negotiations between Beijing and Taipei, which should also involve the United States and Japan. Beijing interpreted this proposal as an attempt to reopen the Cairo Conference decision that, during the Second World War, declared Taiwan part of China. It refused as well to renounce the use of force as an infringement of China's sovereign right To establish control over its own national territory. Ambassador Wang Bingnan, the principal Chinese negotiator for a decade, summed up the deadlock in his memoirs. In retrospect, it was impossible for the U.S. to change its China policy at the time. Under the circumstances, we went directly at the Taiwan question, which was the most difficult, least likely to be resolved, and most emotional. It was only natural that talks could not get anywhere. Only two agreements resulted from these discussions. The first was procedural, to upgrade existing contacts at Geneva, which had been held at the consular level, to ambassadorial rank. The significance of the ambassadorial designation is that ambassadors are technically personal representatives of their head of state, and presumably have somewhat greater latitude and influence. This only served to institutionalize paralysis. 136 meetings were held over a period of 16 years from 1955 until 1971, between the local US and Chinese ambassadors, most of them in Warsaw, which became the venue for the talks in 1958. The only substantive agreement reached was in September 1955, when China and the United States permitted citizens trapped in each country by the Civil War to return home. Thereafter, for a decade and a half, American policy remained focused on eliciting a formal renunciation of the use of force from China. We have searched year after year, Secretary of State Dean Rusk testified before the House Foreign Affairs Committee in March 1966, for some sign that Communist China was ready to renounce the use of force to resolve disputes. We have also searched for some indication that it was ready to abandon its premise that the United States is its prime enemy. The Chinese Communist attitudes and actions have been hostile and rigid. American foreign policy toward no other country had ever been submitted to such a stringent precondition for negotiation as a blanket renunciation of the use of force. Rusk did take note of the gap between the fierce Chinese rhetoric and its relatively restrained international performance in the 1960s. Still, he argued that American policy, in effect, should be based on the rhetoric that ideology was more significant than conduct. Some say we should ignore what the Chinese Communist leaders say and judge them only by what they do. It is true that they have been more cautious in action than in words, more cautious in what they do themselves than in what they have urged the Soviet Union to do, but it does not follow that we should disregard the intentions and plans for the future which they have proclaimed. Based on these attitudes, in 1957, Using the Chinese refusal to renounce the use of force over Taiwan as a pretext, the United States downgraded the Geneva talks from the ambassador to the first secretary level. China withdrew its delegation and the talks were suspended. The second Taiwan Strait crisis followed soon after, though ostensibly for another reason. Mao, Khrushchev, and the Sino-Soviet split In 1953, Stalin died after more than three decades in power. His successor, after a brief transitional period, was Nikita Khrushchev. The terror of Stalin's rule had left its mark on Khrushchev's generation. They had made their big step up the ladder in the purges of the 1930s, when an entire generation of leaders was wiped out. They had purchased the sudden rise to eminence at the cost of permanent emotional insecurity they had witnessed and participated in the wholesale decapitation of a ruling group, and they knew that the same fate might await them. Indeed, Stalin was in the process of beginning another purge as he was dying. They were not yet ready to modify the system that had generated institutionalized terror. Rather, they attempted to alter some of its practices while reaffirming the core beliefs to which they had devoted their lives blaming the failures on the abuse of power by Stalin. This was the psychological basis of what came to be known as Khrushchev's secret speech, to be discussed below. With all their posturing, the new leaders knew deep down that the Soviet Union was not competitive in an ultimate sense. Much of Khrushchev's foreign policy can be described as a quest to achieve a quick fix the explosion of a super-high-yield thermonuclear device in 1961, the succession of Berlin ultimatums, the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. With the perspective of the intervening decades, these steps can be considered a quest for a kind of psychological equilibrium, permitting a negotiation with a country that Khrushchev deep down understood was considerably stronger. Toward China, Khrushchev's posture was condescension, tinged with frustration that the self-confident Chinese leaders presumed to challenge Moscow's ideological predominance. He grasped the strategic benefit of the Chinese alliance, but he feared the implications of the Chinese version of ideology. He tried to impress Mao, but never learned the grammar of what Mao might have taken seriously. Mao used the Soviet threat without paying attention to Soviet priorities. In the end, Khrushchev withdrew from his initial commitment to the alliance with China into a sulky aloofness while gradually increasing Soviet military strength along the Chinese frontier, tempting his successor, Leonid Brezhnev, into exploring the prospects of preemptive action against China. Ideology had brought Beijing and Moscow together, and ideology drove them apart again. There was too much shared history raising question marks. Chinese leaders could not forget the territorial exactions of the Tsars, nor Stalin's willingness, during the Second World War, to settle with Chiang Kai-shek at the expense of the Chinese Communist Party. The first meeting between Stalin and Mao had not gone well. When Mao came to put himself under Moscow's security umbrella, it took him two months to convince Stalin, and he had to pay for the alliance with major economic concessions in Manchuria and Xinjiang, impairing the unity of China. History was the starting point, but contemporary experience supplied seemingly endless frictions. The Soviet Union regarded the communist world as a single strategic entity whose leadership was in Moscow. It had established satellite regimes in Eastern Europe that were dependent on Soviet military and to some extent economic support. It seemed natural to the Soviet Politburo that the same pattern of dominance should prevail in Asia. In terms of Chinese history, his own Sinocentric view and his own definition of communist ideology, nothing could have been more repugnant to Mao. Cultural differences exacerbated latent tensions, especially since the Soviet leaders were generally oblivious of Chinese historic sensitivities. A good example is Khrushchev's request that China supply workers for logging projects in Siberia. He struck a raw nerve in Mao, who told him in 1958, You know, Comrade Khrushchev, for years it's been a widely held view that because China is an underdeveloped and overpopulated country, with widespread unemployment, it represents a good source of cheap labor. But you know, we Chinese find this attitude very offensive. Coming from you, it's rather embarrassing. If we were to accept your proposal, others might think that the Soviet Union has the same image of China that the capitalist West has. Mao's passionate Sinocentrism prevented him from participating in the basic premises of the Moscow-run Soviet Empire. The focal point of that empire's security and political efforts was in Europe, which was of secondary concern to Mao. When, in 1955, the Soviet Union created the Warsaw Pact of Communist countries as a counterweight to NATO, Mao refused to join. China would not subordinate the defense of its national interests to a coalition. Instead, Zhou Enlai was sent to the 1955 Asian-African Conference in Bandung. The conference created a novel and paradoxical grouping, the alignment of the non-aligned. Mao had sought Soviet support as a counterweight to potential American pressure on China in pursuit of American hegemony in Asia. But, concurrently, he tried to organize the non-aligned into a safety net against Soviet hegemony. In that sense, almost from the beginning, the two communist giants were competing with each other. The fundamental differences went to the essence of the two societies' images of themselves. Russia, salvaged from foreign invaders by brute force and endurance, had never claimed to be a universal inspiration to other societies. A significant part of its population was non-Russian. Its greatest rulers, like Peter the Great and Catherine the Great, had brought foreign thinkers and experts to their courts to learn from more advanced foreigners, an unthinkable concept in the Chinese imperial court. Russian rulers appealed to their people on the basis of their endurance, not their greatness, Russian diplomacy relied, to an extraordinary extent, on superior power. Russia rarely had allies among countries where it had not stationed military forces. Russian diplomacy tended to be power-oriented, tenaciously holding on to fixed positions, and transforming foreign policy into trench warfare.